Hello and welcome to episode 421 of the Crate and Crowbar, a gaming podcast being recorded on the 11th of July 2023. I'm Marsh Davis and tonight I'm joined by Jamie Britton. Hello. Hello, Jamie. So you see, Jamie, I, I say it's the 11th of July 2023, but actually I just... I just stepped through this like ancient ring of standing stones uh, in pursuit of some rustic sex with uh, a tussle-haired Highlander. I'm not actually sure what the date is anymore. Like people, <laughs> people just seem happier though, or like like more European maybe. And and you know, you and I, we both look so svelte and unbound by the years of deeply regrettable national and global idiocy. I wonder, Jamie, perhaps you've been playing a game contemporary to our setting that can help fix this fatuous preamble in a particular year. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I don't quite follow, but I love you. (laughs) What have you been playing, Jamie? What have I been playing? Um, I have been playing the incredibly um, up-to-date release that all the kids are talking about. Uncharted for A Thieves End. From 2016, Jamie. That was From, that was the point oh, I was I was oh, right. Don't yeah. worry, man. Don't worry. Sorry. I don't I I I got a C <laughs> in GCSE maths. I don't know why that's an excuse, <laughs> but it is. And I almost failed French. My parents got me <laughs> my parents got me a tutor to get me to a C. That's weird. Anyway. Um <laughs> uh, Uncharted 4, A Thief's or Thieves End. Um, from 2016, Year of Our Lord. Um, yeah, so I've got a PlayStation 5 now, um, just just saying. And uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. And I also got myself the old PSN premium thing, which is quite good. It gives you a bunch of games and a bunch of crap you don't need or want. Uh, want to play Ape Escape? You can stream it. Um, but I've been going through some of the kind of AAA type things I've missed over the years. And... Uh, I wanted to give Uncharted uh, a go um, because it's got a shiny PS5 um, release, um, which they've done recently and is also like free with your, with your PSN subscription thingy. Um, and we talked about the DLC for this a while back, the name of which is impossible to retain. Um, a, nope, nope. <laughs> I just tried to retain it. I just tried to say it. I can't remember what it was. Lost Legacy? Yes, yes, that's so, probably yeah. it. Yeah, but the collection it comes with is called the Legacy Collection, I think. And then mm. the DLC within that is called the Lost Legacy. Uh, I haven't played that yet. I'm looking forward to playing it and um, finding out all about how exotic um, <laughs> the character of Chloe is and is intended to be, um, and using the word exotic in a deeply racially problematic way over and over again. Uh, she's not in Uncharted 4. Uh, she, they kept her over for the DLC, which is a shame because the game misses her. Um, so Uncharted 2 was the first game I remember feeling, wow, this is an action movie you play through. Amazing. Uh, Uncharted 3 was a self-important, uh, quite boring uh, sort of tramp through the sort of same spaces, but I didn't think it was as good. I remember feeling pretty disappointed about it. To the point that I didn't play Uncharted 4 uh, when it came out. Uh, and I wish I had done because it is really, really good. Um, on PS5, at least, it is stunningly beautiful. I mean, you know, it's a game from 2017 that they've given a, you know, a, a fairly robust update to. But my 2016, God. Jamie. 2016, Jamie. 2016. <laughs> 2016. <laughs> God damn it. That they've given an incredibly robust update to, but still. Um, 
it's maybe the most beautiful with a capital B game I've I've played uh, recently, or I think ever really. I mean, there's other games I've played that are more kind of visually satisfying or um, more more kind of creative, even in terms of how they're drawn. Uh, but in terms of kind of a level of sort of picturesque local you know, beauty with some lovely rainforests and crumbling ruins and Scotland bits. Uh, oh, yeah. It's it's really um, it's really up there. Uh, it's it's strikingly gorgeous. Um, and the other thing oh, I right, think I'd, I'd forgotten there was a, a visit to Scotland in that. I'd, otherwise, a, I would have I would have worked harder on my uh, my preamble to to bring the <laughs> the standing stones into it in a more prominent way. But, yeah. <laughs> maybe then I would have got maybe I would have got it. But, uh, it's, <laughs> It's quarter to nine, and my I am a bear of very small brain. Um, <laughs> so, um, playing through, uh, what was I saying? Uh, yeah, so very gorgeous, very beautiful. Um, uh, and the good things I would say about it is that the performances um, are amazing, and the performance capture is amazing. Uh, I'm going to kind of basically spoil some relatively big bits of this game but it is as we have established a 2016 game so uh i think it's okay um uh, and i'm not gonna like go deep on it or anything like that i just want to talk freely about it so there's an early scene which has uh nathan and his wife elena sat on the sofa together and you play a game of crash bandicoot which is quite funny um because you know they literally hand you a ps1 control and you have to play through it which is good and then there is a scene of you just hanging out on the sofa with your wife flirting eating dinner talking bollocks um and it's it's a it's a marvel. It's an absolute marvel of of performance capture and performance and acting, um, and sort of voice performance and everything like that. I've never seen a scene seen a scene of such like um, precise marital intimacy and ease, um, where the the kind of subtleties of the performance and the writing are picked up with such clarity, um, and it's a scene that basically sets the tone for the entire game, the entire story that you're playing through. And I don't think the game would work anything like as well as it does um, without that scene, because it gives you a a sense of understanding of where this guy um, is in his life and who he is and sort of what he's about um, and what he's kind of running away from. That, To be quite frank, the rest of the game fails to sort of really live up to or support or deliver on in any real way. Hmm. Um, it's it's a really fun game. The set pieces are extraordinary. One in particular, which is a car ride through a Madagascan town, which takes you, you know, down into down through this town and then a, sort of across the countryside on a motorway. You know, climaxing with a armored car chasing you down. You know, through a sort oh of, yeah, which is one of the most extraordinary action scenes, if not the most extraordinary action scene I've ever played in a game. You know, as a sort of set piece, there's all sorts of ways it can pan out. You know, you're sort of traveling downhill and there's various different paths and routes you can take, and then you're speeding along a motorway and you're jumping from car to car, and the game is basically supporting you being this kind of badass action hero. And that is just unbelievable. And there are, you know, a couple of other sequences which are pretty close to that, if not quite as amazing, um, uh, you know, including a, some extended driving sequences, which I, I enjoyed as well. And the banter between the characters is really good. 
the sort of platforming and shooting is all as it should be. If you read the Wikipedia page, they say things like they worked really hard on the AI of the enemies to make them respond to the player's actions. It's like, well, maybe they did do that, but when you play the game, you're just mowing down this army of, <laughs> of red shirts. You know, it really doesn't, they don't feel like they have any intelligence um, whatsoever. Um, mm. Yeah. So, yeah, I, and I, I really enjoyed it. I played it all the way through in a couple of sessions. It took me 12 hours. Um, but the reason I sort of wanted to talk about it, actually, sort of more than sort of the stuff I like about it, is the stuff that I found sort of, it's not so much bad, it's just interesting to me. It's kind of, this is the game in which people sort of pre The Last of Us 2 sort of poured a lot of their hopes for like a cinematic game, a cinematic story, an action movie you play through kind of experience. Mm. And the level of fidelity across um, the game in terms of how it looks, how it feels, how it plays is sky high. What's interesting about it is they don't have a story to tell. Um, It's a game in search of a story. Um, and a game that kind of really struggles to find its voice and find its kind of take on anything, its opinion on anything. We're told that it's a story about of a of a guy who needs to kind of who's drawn back into his, you know, his sort of unruly thieves life by his his um, retconned into existence older brother, <laughs> who provides a bunch of uh, motivation for you to kind of you know, gall- gallivanting on on a quest with him and leaving your, you know, life of marital bliss, bliss behind. But the game just, it's, it, it struggles um, like an episode of, like a sort of mid-season episode of a TV show to find its footing, to find justification for its characters. It keeps flashing back to all these kind of pretty irrelevant sequences um, which are an attempt to situate the characters somewhere emotionally with each other, give them a party. There's this long sequence with you as a boy and your older brother going around this old woman's house, discovering the kind of spoils of her life spent exploring. And the game wants you to think, um, ooh, look at the terrible cost of, of, of what this kind of life engenders in a character. But what you actually end up thinking is, God, this is going on. Like this is this is a long <laughs> sequence of me walking around this house, very beautiful house, but there's 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 sort of nothing going on under the hood here, and it just it's it was interesting to me because these games, these kind of character action games, are the kind of um, you know it, in a way the standard bearers bearers of video games, um, and they're expected to be of the highest possible quality across the board, mm. you know the and people plunge huge amounts of money into them but it's so hard to write a good story it's so hard to write episode four in a movie series you know when when has number four of a movie like franchise ever been any good hardly ever you know you're often really in the kind of straight to dvd dregs there because characters have finite um, you know amounts of things that they can do and journeys that they can go on and mm. you know if Uncharted 3 was an attempt to kind of get to the heart of Nathan Drake and who he is and understand him and what's this terrible deception that we've named the game after which is going to be something I don't remember at all what it was but I'm sure it was very deceiving you know and then <laughs> coming to Uncharted 4 which you know might as well 
be you know subtitled uncharted uncharted for here we go again you know it's like <laughs> there's there's just a kind of once around the houses vibe to it which the game tries to find meaning and purpose behind but kind of fails at and I've, i feel bad for it because you know they're doing such an incredible job with everything but that but i don't i don't understand how you can really sort of write you know they've clearly made a huge amount of effort to to make the story sing and to make the characters really spark off each other, but they can't find the humanity within it. Um, and I think it's not even a shame. It's still such a really wonderful experience, but it's it's simplistic. It's sort of too simplistic, and you end up feeling slightly hollow by the end of it. I think, even though it's been a really rip roaring ride. So you were never convinced by the uh, sort of the retconned relationship with his brother. I remember that playing a, a big part in it, but I don't really remember the details of it, other than his brother is, you know, p- possibly more roguish than he is. No, it, well, you know, he his brother is the is kind of yeah a, a sort of version of you who's been you know stuck in jail for a for a huge amount of time, and so is you before you've kind of settled down with your missus and is going to, you know, it represents the kind of bad side of you. But it's got that weird thing of, I remember talking to Tom about this um, with uh, Frozen 2, <laughs> Frozen 2, the uh, the Disney movie, hmm. where there is often a instinct among creators, I think, and creative people to really like when they feel like they've put something out into the world, which is special to people. They don't want to um, pollute it or corrupt it um, or make it kind of uh, seem off from what people originally responded to. And I think with sequels, and um, particularly with, with you know extended amounts of sequels, it's a really hard thing to manage because obviously you want to push your character into a new place but you don't want to push them so far that people um don't recognize them and if you watch frozen 2 i can just like feel the writing process for that movie where they never wanted any of the characters to ever fall out or ever get really upset with each other in a genuine way or for anything to really ever come between them and of course those things are the are the basis of drama um, are the basis of of character development and all the kind of fundamental things you kind of need for a for a movie or a story or anything to work. And Uncharted, even though it has these moments of like, oh, Elena's going to turn up and she's got really really cross with Drake and she's going to, you know, make him feel really bad for the, how he's lied to her and and the brother's going to double cross him and that that's going to make Drake feel bad as well. But ultimately, you feel that the characters are far too well protected and. The choices they made, they make even the poor choices are so understandable and so amenable to, you know, just going, well, you can sort of you can sort of forgive it, that the characters end up just forgiving each other too easily and expecting the audience to do it too, which ends up making it feel um flat and mm. and kind of unsexy in a funny kind of way. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Cause I can imagine uh that being viewed as uh, a level of nuance that games had not hitherto brought, <laughs> you know, uh, if you have somebody double cross you, they would be painted in the starkest colors as a villain uh, in years gone by. So I wonder if like uh, a lot of the things that you now feel underwhelming uh, about Uncharted 4 uh, are a reaction to like the the nascent growth of narrative as a, as a sort of mature um thread within our medium 
yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that's that's probably right. And that's why I was kind of trying to couch what I was saying and not so much like in that kind of why have they done this sort of way. Mm. I think I think the game is polished to look so up to date that it's easy to forget that it is a number of years old <laughs> yeah. uh, than, than uh, you know, and so it probably falls foul to that um, a little bit. I guess, I guess what I, I sort of ultimately think about it is that a game from back then you end up judging it judging it by its faults um because they they're so ambitious with what they do and and how they want you to respond to a game that i guess it is easy to look back at what they're what they've achieved and kind of go well nice try but you didn't quite pull mm. you know pull this one off um which is why i'm putting a lot of parenthesis around what i'm saying because i was really taken with it i was just you know thinking about this kind of form of video game as this kind of grand blockbuster narrative, there's still so far to go in a kind of exciting way. There's still so much, like, mm. because the best action movies, right? Even like the best, like, Mission Impossible movies manage to, like, achieve a level of character development in motion um, that doesn't feel like it has to kind of, uh, you know, take the easiest or, you know, stupidest uh, ways through a given story, i.e., you know, in the kind of Fast and the Furious model. I wonder if uh, like, there's a sort of connection between the way that the they've thought about narrative and the way that you've responded to that sequence where you're walking through the, the old lady's house. Because Uncharted is sort of like, I wouldn't say it's famous for it, but it's notable for these moments of pause uh, uh, in the game um, I think I remember it being very heavily praised, like the first Uncharted game, maybe the first, or maybe it was Uncharted 2, who knows which one, where you end up in uh, Tibet and like everything stops. You're not shooting at people. You're just walking around this village and, and, and admiring it. And it's like a slice of life walking simulator, as it wouldn't have been called at the time. The Pat the Yak moment, yeah. Pat the Yak moment, yes. Every game. <laughs> Every game has a pat the yap moment, <laughs> but I, I. But one of the reasons that those moments were so special is because they gave you this opportunity, at least for me, to, to walk around and examine the amazing assets <laughs> yeah. of the game. And you know, it was so remarkable at the time because you know, the the fidelity was being pushed uh, by these games uh, year on year, and and you know, Uncharted, the Uncharted games were at the forefront of that that kind of graphical vanguard and so it was really stunning just to walk around and you oh i've picked up a brooch i've picked up a brooch i can rotate the brooch look at all the <laughs> reflections in the brooch and all this you know that was that was so exciting and I, and i think like going back to those scenes now even if they have you know even if they've been updated to be as uh you know uh on a par in terms of fidelity with the games of today even if they did that it wouldn't be as wowing now because it's not such a thing it's not not the thing on which games are judged uh, it's not a there's no novelty attached to the the the, the stunning reflections that you see in the the eye of a, a jade scorpion or whatever you know it's uh and i i wonder if that's so so those the, the pat the yak moments feel flat you pat the flat yak um <laughs> because they don't have that because they, you no longer experience it in the context in which they were, they were put out into the world initially. You know what they, what the designers were achieving with that were was inevitably a reaction to the the games of 
the past years where those things weren't possible. And I wonder if that's true of like the narrative as well. You know, these these um, you know, when you're talking about the the flatness of of some of those kind of character arcs and the fact that uh, everybody forgives each other and everybody behaves quite reasonably, I, I wonder if like that all of that is you know the the same thing. It's you know there's you you can. That that was remarkable at the time because it had not existed previously. But coming back to it now, when there's been so much kind of headway in terms of narrative since then, that that kind of stuff doesn't hit you in the same way. Yeah, I think that's I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I think that you know there's there've always been games that have kind of you know um, you know uh, sharper elbows with, with regards to story, but I do think you know. Uncharted does kind of, you know, pitch itself as a sort of Saturday morning matinee kind of, you know, mm. vibe. So it's kind of, um, perhaps I am hoping for too much. I guess what I guess the problem is is it does have the what it definitely has in the game is the pretense of being a bit more substantive and a bit more kind of fulfilling and, and a bit more complicated. Um, whilst not being that, I think I might have responded better to it if it had less kind of um you know sort of of the sort of coding of heaviness and complexity right. and, and character development <laughs> you, so, so yeah as as uh, naughty dog was striving to make deeper and deeper games we are now looking back at it and saying why weren't you just stupider you could be better <laughs> if you're stupider well i mean i have to say that for me i i enjoyed the sort of ludo narrative you know dissonance that everyone went on about with with Drake, you know, butchering his way through entire armies of people, that was never so much a problem for me. And I always liked that he was this kind of, you know, Joker guy who would fall off a cliff and go, no, 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 you know, and do all that sort of meme stuff because that roguish character was actually really like ludonarratively consonant with what you were doing in the games, including the kind of blasting through people, that kind of insouciance of him. Um, especially in Uncharted 2, was perfect for like making me feel like I was playing as someone who didn't give a fuck about anything, um, mm. really, and who was just a kind of Indiana Jones stand-in with the kind of, you know, this, with more of a kind of sense of humor about himself. And actually, as the games have periodically tried to sort of deepen him and and shore him up as a more complicated, rounded character, I actually think. The game, the games become more ludonarratively dissonant with the gameplay because, you know, him caring mm. doesn't really match up with a character who's kind of hopping around, you know, cliffs and 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 swinging on vines and all manner of of you know Indiana Jones kind of hijinks. So I think that that might be it as that, there might be something in that too. Um, you know, mm. for him to confront his brother and his brother is oh my god, he's the dark Drake, he's the Drake who. <laughs> who is still wanting to find treasure when I gave up that whole dream a few years ago. <laughs> and just when I was out, he pulled me back in, you know, and it's, it's kind of, yeah, I think it's, and it's interesting that the game that the creative team went on to make after this was of course, uh, the last of us two, um, which by all accounts is the most serious game in the history of, of the entire medium. <laughs> so, um, I am I am, I am resolved to play that that one. Oh wow, you're limbering um, up to that, are you? Gosh, yeah, well, that's I, that's a slog. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it sounds like a horror. It sounds like an absolute nightmare. Um, I mean, funnily I'm, I'm enough, very interested to hear what you th- you think about it. Did you? Uh, did yeah. you play Last of Us One? I did. I did play Last of Us One, and I. What did I think of it? 
I thought it was really, really good. I got bored of the gameplay. I love the story. I love the characters. I found the actual sort of, yeah, game of it a little bit um, forbidding and difficult. Hmm. Um, How did you, you know, feel that that kind of matched up on the scale of it? You know, or whether it's, it's, it's aspirations to seriousness matched up with the kind of more consonant action of it being a cartoon? I think I think The Last of Us has better characters at the heart of it. I think the characters in The Last of Us, even though they're all essentially cover versions of stuff that's come previously, in the same way that Drake is actually, Joel and Ellie are just more interesting. They're more complicated at their heart. They've been conceived mm. with complexity as the kind of core feature of them, really. Um, and they're much more restless characters in a kind of dynamic sense you know they're not necessarily just one thing and so you know the events of the first game and the, and the events of the second they grow organically a word that is very annoying but I'm still using it they grow organically from positions of of complexity rather than trying to like fight their way into it fight their way into a sense of emotional height you know they're all emotional height and that's like a bold thing to do and that first game, at least, is is a kind of real work of the story. You know, people talk about it as this kind of bastion of storytelling, and it is. But it's it's not so much a bastion of of kind of script writing or or plotting. It's it's a it's a masterpiece of of character, and the relationship between those characters feels very true. I think most people, you know, always think about you know audiences and people play games or watch watch things. What people are very good at detecting pretty much universally is insincerity. I think when things are insincere, people can always tell if they're lazily conceived or chucked together. And, you know, Drake didn't feel like that in Uncharted 2, but maybe he has a little bit since then. You certainly couldn't say that, you know, even the strongest critics of The Last of Us 2 uh, couldn't, you know, really make an argument that they aren't conceived, at least, with a huge amount of um, soul and emotion and, and heart. Um, and a lot of that is, is down to the performances that they get as well. Um, so yeah, it's uh, uh, it'll be interesting to play that. You know, I'm, I'm you know I'm now working in video game narrative, and so I'm trying to kind of get a handle on some of the stuff that I've missed over the the last you know few years as I kind of crate and crowbarred my way through all of the you know indie titles <laughs> and, and kind of weirdo games that this podcast sort of drove me towards. So now I'm kind of sort of getting back into that space um is, is, so and, is that what is that what prompted you particularly to pick up uncharted as sort of like homework yeah uh, yeah a little bit like trying to get like a you know because there's obviously lots of amazing work being done in narrative you know in 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 the indie space and in the kind of you know super indie space but yeah i did want to get a grasp on you know much more of the, the kind of triple a kind of environment yeah. as well to kind of get more of a wider wider scope of it so i'm having pl- fun playing through uh, you know a lot of that stuff i've got miles morales uh, lined up next oh yeah um which i'm looking forward to. i played i played the first hour of that uh, just today actually and it was bloody spectacular i love those mm. games <laughs> well so what, what else is on your sort of hit list oh well I'm all, if anyone wants to recommend anything for to me i'm all ears i have i have yet to play titanfall 2 which everyone says is fantastic so i'm looking forward to that um I probably will steer clear of the angry dad of war games. 
Um, not sure if I quite really? have the energy for those. Yeah, I just don't think I have. I, again, I end up sounding like such a twat, but like I just don't feel like I quite <laughs> have the energy for them. I've also like I've watched I watched Christopher Rod like stream most of the first game, so I feel like oh, I've right. got a relatively good handle on that. But I'm probably going to do a Jedi Survivor on myself. I think. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. I did. Uh, I enjoyed. I ended up enjoying the narrative in, in both of those games more than I have most of the Star Wars films of recent <laughs> years. Not, not necessarily um, that hard, but yeah. <laughs> no, no. But I, I think they did. They accomplished something which was, uh, which is a very tricky task. Yeah, I mean, we as gamers are um, an impossible audience, really, because. We want it all, right? We want, I mean, games are expensive, so it's sort of understandable, but we also, we really want, you know, we want our games to be a really, you know, you know, if we're playing 60 quid for one, we want it to be fantastic feeling in the hands, you know, it has to have the best combat, has to have, you know, this real like one-to-one connection between you and the pad or the mouse and the keys. And we also want all of the characters to be realized with this kind of full fidelity, you know, film level quality, that all has to make sense together. Um, and it's no wonder that so many games like for so long have had silent protagonists and versions of that because it's just so tricky to to make that sing. Like this has to be a Star Wars story that you get to play through over a you know a period of time which like you know dwarfs the length of any of the movies individually and uh, you know, with this cast of characters, like all of the requirements of a of a video game into an already existing world with this this kind of rapidly, you know, exponentially uh, advancing level of technology that players expect too. I mean, it's it's you know, even though I've been you know slagging off Uncharted Four, I mean, it's a wonder that these games work as well as they do. I think. Mm. Mm. Can I recommend a game for you to play, please? L.A. Noir, which is coincidentally mm. the game I've been playing, um, <laughs> not not out of narrative homework, but just like. Uh, are you sure it's not homework? Are, are you sure you're not um, training to be a detective in 1950s <laughs> um, Los Angeles? If I could, uh, it sounds like a, a great time. But um, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think it was more just having spent fifty almost completely empty hours in Di- Diablo Four. Um, and then, then I started and almost immediately hated two other games that I'd been looking forward to. So, um, the idea of then having like a reliably six out of 10 time in 1950s LA <laughs> suddenly, suddenly seemed very appealing. Quite um, like the idea of an action RPG set in, uh, LA confidential land. That'd be quite good, wouldn't it? You're sort of run, run, rolling with your cop crew and, uh, taking down, uh, crack dens and, uh, <laughs> sleeping sleeping with prostitutes cut to look like Lana Turner. Um, oh gosh. Yeah. Um, having a big having a big online boss fight with James Cromwell. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh yeah, I mean some of that stuff sort of happens. <laughs> um the reason I'd recommend it is because um I think it is like and I've, I have it, I have enjoyed going back to it. I have to say, but I think it is like demonstrably terrible, <laughs> in, specifically in terms of its narrative design. And I think a lot of its other design elements are just sort of, um, at least now, appear quite wonky. Uh, but also, always appeared superfluous. Like it has this open world um, that is absolutely n- not more necessary than a loading screen uh, would have been, and. 
uh, there are car chases and shootouts, and neither of those things are particularly good or particularly warranted by the game. And I wonder how much cheaper it would have been to make if it hadn't had any of those things. Yeah. Um, have you? Did you play it back in the day? I did. I did. Yeah. Did you like it? <laughs> I, it was. I. I really. <laughs> it was. So, it was such a peculiar game. You know, like fight because they. You know, it was a game where they were. Someone was making it, and it wasn't going quite well enough. And Rockstar Game turned up, presumably to the sound of like guitars, wearing like you know, uh, you know, sunglasses, and said, "We'll we'll make your game into something." And then they sort of strapped all these like shooting and driving and you know, high level shit in there, which kind of changed it up and sort of made it into a Rockstar game. Hmm. Um, I remember. I don't really know exactly what things they brought to it. You can certainly see Rockstar DNA in 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 a lot of it. Like obviously they've they presumably. Uh, cross-pollinated technology like the, the the physics system that handles you falling over and stuff but i mean <laughs> and there's a lot of the kind of incredibly um out of place rock star barks from pedestrians and things who are just saying mad mad shit like you know uh, we know where olive oil comes from but where does baby oil come from somebody says <laughs> as you're like stalking over the corpse of a recently w- murdered secretary uh, <laughs> i'm trying to exist in the 1950s over here exactly exactly yeah so that stuff is i mean i blame rockstar for that blame slash credit rockstar for that but i mean i don't really know whether it's set out to be this all singing all dancing open world thing or whether it was tr- where whether that was something that was imposed upon it I don't know. Did you? I mean, you you say that stuff. Is that because you've you've read that somewhere? I feel like I've read that somewhere, but feel free to strike me down. Should <laughs> I be uh, uh, wrong? Um, yeah, but I, I would I'd like to, I'd like to talk about the the way it um, it mechanizes dialogue choices because I think it's so it's so wrong that <laughs> uh, it's it is fascinating as like a <laughs> as a study of how how not to do this kind of stuff. Because you, um, one of the kind of the main parts of the game is that you interrogate witnesses or suspects, and um, you get a, a dialogue with them, and you get this pretty kind of narrowly defined list of questions that you can ask. And there's no uh, there's no value in doing them out of order. I don't think I don't think that ever I don't think that ever happens in the game. And uh, unlike other detective games, you aren't you aren't picking items from like a list of evidence to ask about you're just going through this list of questions uh, the game has permitted you to ask which may or may not <laughs> reference the evidence that you think is important um and then once you've you've asked your question and got some sort of response out of your subject you're given the same three options each time and uh, those options at least it's been uh, remastered and the options have changed uh but in the original version i in the release version, I should say, because in fact the options were even different, more different than that during production. But <laughs> finally, in uh, uh, when it came came to the shelves, it was truth, doubt, or lie. And like, you can already see one problem here. Not even at the level of narrative design, but like at the level of UX, which is that the words they've chosen don't even apply in a consistent grammatical way. So, like, doubt is something that your character is doing. Whilst lie is something that the interrogatee is doing potentially, I don't know. Maybe that's maybe I'm just no, being it, pedantic about it is that. A, it is a, that's a nightmare. <laughs> those are like <laughs> the two most ambiguous ways you could term those two things. 
<laughs> well, it's, I mean, the whole thing is weird in that because doubt and lie are basically the same in terms of what your character then says. Because in each case, your your character disbelieves what the person you're speaking to is saying. You don't think they're giving the, the full story or you think there's something that they've said which is contradicted by evidence. And the only difference is between those two things, I mean, the, the words are different, but the sentiment is exactly the same in each of those choices. The only difference is that when you pick lie, you have to then back up your assertion by selecting a piece of evidence that contradicts their testimony. And like, so what's weird about that is that you're essentially saying both the same things. Like, uh, imagine for a moment that you, Jamie Britton, have been caught for one of the many terrible crimes that you have perpetrated. And Absolutely. I'm interrogating you and uh, you say some bullshit. And then I, uh, as, as the interrogator, don't believe your bullshit. Now I have two options. Either I say, I don't believe you, or I say, I don't believe you. And then you say, prove it. So me choosing those two choices isn't changing what I say. It's changing what you say, <laughs> which, which doesn't make any sense. Do, do, do you understand what I'm getting? It's so do. confusing. Yes. It's, it's very confusing. I remember <laughs> spending quite a lot of time in the game worrying about this particular problem. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. The, the weird thing is they, they've decided that, like, it would make much more sense if you were just selecting between lines of text, which your character then says. But because they've decided to systematize it in some way, the, the, uh, it makes no sense at all. And uh, because, because, and no, I mean, aside from the fact that the categories themselves are so close to each other as to be meaningless, like, there's, there's, <laughs> there's so little discipline in sticking to it and it, what either of these things mean consistently throughout the game. That sometimes you can, you know, uh, you'll pick a, uh, a character will say something which is like really multi-part or vague or specific. And you don't necessarily have like a, a particular piece of evidence that contradicts the one thing that they said in that sentence but that your character will pick them up on. But you do broadly know that they are fucking lying. And yet you can't accuse them of lying because then you need to be able to, I don't know, point to a handbag and, and uh, <laughs> that you don't have or something. But uh, there's a really it's... good um, there's a really good clip that I sometimes um, sort of get out, uh, shovel out of uh, YouTube, which is a scene from the game where you're interviewing a guy, someone's done this, put this together, you're interviewing a guy and you say, like, you found, come on, Steve, you found the girl, you took her into the woods, you you murdered her, and then you hid the body, and you you hid it from your wife, and everyone knows you've done it. And then the guy goes, like, uh, you can't prove anything. And then he looks down at his book and he doesn't have <laughs> doesn't have any evidence. And he goes, all right, Steve, I guess I made a mistake. And then they dub <laughs> yeah. in the uh, Kirby Enthusiasm music over the top of it. Well, um, that, that is, I mean, doing that is the only way to play the game and hope to have success because you don't know what your character will pick the character up on when you say yeah. lie. And sometimes it's so specific you kind of predict it. So you need to, to go down the lie path and then back out of it <laughs> every time. <laughs> Which you would be a terrible way to be a police officer well, in 1950s. Is that you You accuse them of lying in this weird specific way and then you don't have evidence for it. So you back out. But you know they're lying. So then you then doubt them and then you accuse them basically of the same thing and then they don't ask you to prove it and you've won. <laughs> it's just the most nonsensical 
system. I, I I don't understand how they ended up on it. I think now that they've gone, they've changed it now. So it's uh, <laughs> it's it's even more disassociated from any kind of mechanical hook. So now instead of having um, truth, doubt, and lie, you have good cop, bad cop, and lie or accuse. Um, Ah, but yes, that, the, I mean, the three that, genders. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I mean, even that, there's that can't be. I mean, you are you are being mean, generally speaking, when you doubt somebody. But I don't think that that's necessarily what the, the bad cop. That I, I don't think that's consistent across the game either. But but the, the, I mean, been... the other obvious, the, the famous, the famously weird extra part of this is that they had this um, the. This, this, this. One of the re- the reasons that you would pick from those categories is that you're you're trying to read the subject's expression. And La Noir pioneered this this new kind of co- mocap, which was then completely abandoned by the industry. Um, so normally at that time when you had like a, a character, you they would have photographed their face basically and slapped it on a three D model, and then they would have puppeted that model to produce different expressions. But this is different because it's it's sort of a, a live topological scan of the actor's face in in real time as they're acting, um, and it, in some ways that produces like a much more sophisticated and subtle set of expressions than the mocap methods of the time. But the the fidelity of that era was still reasonably low enough that it required all the actors to go really big in order to sell these ideas. And because the ideas they're selling are so fucking strange, like uh, a character will be prompted to look like they're lying versus look like you're lying in a very specific way that will make you demand evidence when challenged and you have to be able to differentiate between those two expressions. And so what happens is that, yeah, and, and because they have to, like these expressions have to persist until you make your choice and you have an indefinite amount of time to do so, the characters just sort of sit there squirming and twitching and smirking <laughs> like like on loop if forever. Uh, yeah. it, very, very strange. Very strange. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. I remember looking at a character looking, looking guilty, and it's and and I remember thinking to myself, "Well, she's she's got a really guilty face on there. That's a very guilty woman I'm looking at." But is she looking that guilty because she's trying to throw me off the scent by you know like pretending to be really guilty about it? Like it it doesn't actually work because the game mm. wants you to to examine the expressions of people um, closely to try and work out whether they're lying to you or not. But because, as you say, they're also exaggerated, if you met these people in real life, you would have no clue whether they were lying or not. Because <laughs> they're just because all they're having all... a stroke. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And But also it doesn't even play consistently by that. Like, I mean, it's, it's not... The thing is they don't know whether they are uh, writing a movie script or whether they're making a, a game with, with specific mechanical hooks. And that, that doubt go, is, is a problem throughout. And to the extent that they have, you know, like they, when they want to heighten the difficulty of these interrogations, they just have characters who do not emote at all when they're telling a lie. And yeah, sure, that's... That's what really happens in reality when you come across people who are good liars. But, but at the same time, it as a sort of like a game of choice, it just doesn't function anymore. It's funny, isn't it? I played I play through like one and a half Phoenix Wright games in the last year or so. Mm. I find them quite um, rich and overwhelming, so I, I take them very very slowly. But they're very very good. And like one of the clever things about them is like the whole setup of like a court 
trial where you know in this it's all done in this kind of faintly um mad way that i gather is relatively uh accurate to the way that some Japanese courts run but like the fact that there is this like witness statement phase and then a cross-examination phase and it's all set up basically to contain you kind of solving this mystery in the courtroom which is obviously ridiculous but it makes you know it makes more internal sense than in LA Noir where you're just sort of rocking up at people's houses and places of work and uh, and stuff like that and just accusing them of, of random murders um, without having that kind of basis of of kind of you know a, a legal system to kind of kick the discussion off and and someone to argue with you know an advocate on the other side as well yeah i wonder if um I mean, Ellie Noir could have definitely done with like some giant cartoon beads of sweat. <laughs> I think <laughs> as a as a tell system, that would have been good. <laughs> I mean, to, to some extent, it doesn't really matter because you sort of blunder your way through these investigations, getting like most of the questions wrong, and your character still is able to draw conclusions and and close the case. Um, and a lot of the times, the cases that you're closing don't have like a definite solution. The canonical. Uh, choices that are available to you are both wrong. <laughs> uh, and you can go into the final phase of that case thinking, well, no, this is this is definitely not the end of it. Neither of these people are guilty, uh, and yet you must accuse one of them. So it's... Uh, uh, yeah, yeah well, you, know, I, you know, being a policeman so, works. So the fact that you've 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 you know fluffed some interrogations at that stage doesn't really matter. You just have to kind of roll with it as as a as a narrative as a as a you know, uh, aspirational film script that never quite got made, which I think is probably where this was heading. And that, you know, like word for word, actually, I think it sounds really good. And and I, I like, I actually like most of the writing in it. Um, uh, uh, Remember, it's got really good actors in it, and like, like basically, you can play spot the Mad Ma- Mad Men uh, actor. Yeah. It's like the same cadre of actors throughout. Yeah, the guy you play is a, a madman, madman, I believe. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's, Ken. So he's a good character. Like, I mean, I, obviously, it is very indebted to LA Confidential. Your character is like prissy and sanctimonious in in some of the ways that like Edmund Exley, uh, Guy Pierce's character from LA Confidential, is. But then I think he is also substantially different. Like his history is different, and he is sort of um, he's not as uh, ambitious. Uh, and um, and allured by the glamour as Edmund Exley is, he's more kind of, he's even more uptight than Edmund Exley, I think. And that that's interesting itself. And there's some of the other characters who surround him. All your partners are really uh, really interesting. And the, the the more time you spend with them, the the further away they veer away from stereotype into into something quite uh, interesting uh, and subtle. Another way, um, it's like um, LA Confidential. Is do you remember that bit in LA Confidential where they have to drive around for hours trying to stop that bus? And it's really, really tricky to work out. <laughs> they can't work out where they're supposed to go to stop the bus, and they need to stop a bus. And, and the whole movie grinds to a halt for forty-five minutes while they try and work out how to stop a bus. I think that was, I think that was in the movie. <laughs> yeah, none of those chase sequences really work, partly because the, the the AI traffic isn't quite up to it. And like, uh, just, you know, driving around LA. One of the, one of the things I, I wanted to get out of it was just like, I thought it'd be nice just to. You know, 
pootle around in a, in an old Buick around uh, 1950s LA. For some reason, I thought driving in LA would be a good thing. I don't know what what, what in reality had given me that impression. But um, no, all the cars just sort of like plow into each other at every junction. So it's, uh, it wasn't quite as rest of an experience as I'd hoped. Uh, oh, but, I, but, you know, I did enjoy it. I, I came away thinking like it's one of those games where you, you're like, you know, how good would this have been if it had been any good? <laughs> like all it needed really was uh, was for you to like airdrop Hannah Nicklin or, or Meg Jayanth onto it and and sort out those dialogue trees and maybe axe like fifty percent of the other <laughs> the rest of the game, and it would have been just like a, a you know a, a game for the ages. I think you know I'd, I'd love a CD post-war LA procedural. Um, and I like I like pacing around a crime scene and examining evidence. I like going back and forth between the witnesses with your notebook and puncturing holes in their testimony, and you know, occasionally surprisingly yelling at them <laughs> for being nosy old hags or whatever it is that your character <laughs> says uh, unbidden. Um, but like, it did just didn't need the open world. Uh, you know, they built this entire fucking city for you just to 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 skip driving across. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, saying that, I mean, I definitely want that game. Maybe they'll, maybe that'll be something they do. Be, you know, I think if they, I think everyone would lose their mind if they announced L.A. Noir two. I think that'd be a really exciting prospect. Oh yeah, they should do that. But I, I think, I think even then, they'd be tempted to rock star it to the nines by <laughs> by adding all this kind of extraneous simulatory stuff. Which actually, I mean, even if it was executed well, and I think L.A. Noir's shortcomings are that it uh, that stuff doesn't quite function well enough to justify it uh, regardless. But uh, even if they did that stuff well, I think it would still feel extraneous to what is the the most satisfying part of it, which is the the, the, the sleuthing, which is why you're there. Um, I, I wish they'd like, just focused uh, on that. I remember enjoying the um, crime scene bits. They were kind of mm. suitably kind of gross. And sort of, yeah, you know, it, does, it doesn't weird, flinch away from stuff. Voyeuristic, it's <laughs> naked, dead women that you're sort of yeah. pouring at and turning over and all that sort of stuff. That's kind of that was quite yeah, effective, but, I thought. Uh, yeah, children burnt to a crisp and <laughs> posed, amongst Christ. other things. Like, I mean, it's, it's surprisingly uh, un, un, unwary of taboo, uh, the game, which is, I, I don't know, either refreshing or bad. <laughs> I can't quite it's, it's, it's also just emblematic of, uh, you know, particularly sort of American pop culture in that, you know, that old cliche that on CSI or, you know, one of those, uh, you know, uh, NCIS, you can show a guy who's like had his head stoved in by, a, you know, a ladder or whatever, but you can't show a boob actually. Like it's, mm. it's you know. Oh, well, you know, you get both. You do get boobs. You get both. Well, yeah. there we go. You can't say fairer than that. <laughs> <laughs> ah. Have you been playing anything else from the distant, distant past? Yeah, I've been playing an even older game. I've been playing Bloodborne, which is a game wow. from two, 2015, um, yeah. released by um, Fromware Software. Um, and uh, one of the reasons to get a PS5 is mm. so you can play Bloodborne without it sounding like it's going to take off as a jet and fly into <laughs> space, which um, the two PS4s I owned both did. <laughs> it was very annoying when the second one started doing it. Um, so yeah, I've been playing Bloodborne, um, which is a bloody masterpiece, as everyone knows, and I'm now going to be the first person on a podcast ever to talk about that game. Um, <laughs> I'll also just say that the uh, Crate and Crowbar plays uh, Bloodborne is excellent. And, and and should be watched by everyone, as is the uh, Dark Souls playthrough that oh, you did. Oh, thank but, you. Uh, 
that have uh, <laughs> both required watching, I think, um, especially for the noise that Chris makes when he finally beats the uh, blood-starved beast, um, which nearly breaks the internet. Because <laughs> there's been like five episodes of a vi- video podcast of just Tom and Chris dying to the blood-starved beast again and again and again. My favorite uh, parts are where they they repeatedly lure people down uh, to fall down ladders. That's that, that's 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 basically my my kink is uh, is, is playing from software games and uh, luring mid bosses down lift shafts. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. There's a very good sort of <laughs> tribute video at the end of one of them, which <laughs> is really genuinely hilarious. Um, so yeah, Bloodborne. And like, it's funny to play this, you know, a game that came out a year before Uncharted 4 and is in many ways its complete opposite. But the thing is, you know, like Uncharted 4, we're just talking about like judging it kind of, you know, by the standards of now rather than the standards of then. But Bloodborne, my God, is still so good <laughs> so kind of wonderful and so completely timeless um it feels like it was released yesterday um to be honest i mean a little bit of a lick and a shine and it you know basically could have been um hopefully that remaster or whatever they eventually do with it will come soon mm. although i was thinking to myself earlier maybe what they'll do after elden ring is like or after um armored core it's like a Elden Ring style open world game in the Bloodborne universe. How good would that mm-hmm. be? Um, anyway, so playing Bloodborne, um, what a wonderful thing it is! In the in my experience, it kind of reflects back at you, sort of who you are when you play it. Um, so when I first played Bloodborne um, on on release day in two thousand and fifteen, it was the you know maybe the third Souls game I tried. Um, I'd bounced off all of them in the way that most people do, just kind of thinking they were sort of ridiculous uh, in in kind of construction. Like, how the fuck am I supposed to play this ridiculous game? It doesn't want me to play it. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't like me. It doesn't want me to play it. I remember playing Dark Souls 2 and just dying and dying and dying and dying. And then I finally, like, got somewhere and then my sword broke. And I was just like, oh, fuck you. I don't even, I don't even know if I can get another sword. This is ridiculous. <laughs> And then finally playing Bloodborne, having no real idea about what it was. I think someone just said, oh, they got this game out. And ultimately that game would like completely rewire my brain in terms of what a video game can do and what it can be. It was the kind of, you know, the values of something like Eco or Shadow of the Colossus brought through into a much more like vivid and extraordinary experience that has like HP Lovecraft, you know, stuff delivered pretty much better than anyone else has, including HP himself. And... Um, but when I played it back then, you know, it took me eight or nine hours to get past the first boss, the Cleric Beast, who it turns out is optional, which is one of the great slam dunks ever. You spend eight <laughs> or nine hours, or I did, like fighting that fucker, thinking, finally, I'll get over this bridge and get over this bridge and the rest of the game awaits me. And then you kill him and it's it's not the way forward. It's really very funny indeed. But like <laughs> when I first played Bloodborne, uh, my experience of it was this kind of meditation on misery and hopelessness and horror, which I found like really took me over, you know, playing through it, not knowing what was going on really at all throughout the entire game, um, not really understanding anything, um, but wanting to push forward into it and see all of its horrifying sights and kind of finding it really, really hard. You know, my first playthrough, and I did the easiest ending, which I'll come to, I think took me like 
95 hours or something you know it was a long time and it, i did it over the course of an entire year and like halfway through that year um my partner had uh, a baby um who is now seven um and uh, uh without going into too much detail the way that that baby arrived <laughs> was quite dramatic and slightly rewired the way i think about bodies and uh, blood and trauma and things like that um and you know that kind of is definitely part of my memories of, of playing bloodborne that first time and when i got to the end of the game you get you, there's various endings but there's one ending where you can basically end the game early you can submit yourself to be um you know sort of executed and the game ends early and you sort of literally lock yourself out of of two like extra bosses if you do that but when I got to that moment I was just like yes like it wasn't even a choice I was like I'm going to submit myself this has to end this horror has to <laughs> stop um you know we the, the hunt must end you know I was really in character it wasn't like even something I thought about which I then did and then like you know stopped playing it basically and was very happy um to have stopped playing it uh safe in the knowledge that it was probably the greatest game I've ever played it's so funny coming back to it years later with a PlayStation that I feel I can play in my house without bothering everyone. Um, you know, the the knowledge of the game, prior knowledge of it, shrinks it massively. And in the in seven hours, I managed to kind of clear the first half of the game, whereas that was the first area in the um, in my original playthrough. And I'm by no means some elite gamer type. It's just that. When you've played through that game once, it's much, much easier to kind of skip through it again. Mm. And doing it sort of this time with sort of years later, having like, you know, listened to a bunch of podcasts and, you know, the Bonfire Chat is a brilliant one um, where they've kind of picked these games clean and watched Fati Vidya lore videos and just kind of thinking about Bloodborne quite a lot over the years. I often find myself thinking about it. It's such a like a brisk pleasure to kind of jump back into it and zoom through it as a kind of action adventure sort of spectacle game, you know, um, having fun kind of reading through lore that I kind of not understood before or, you know, trying things out. Like I, I decided to go into the DLC and get the amy- amygdala arm, which is this like weird stumpy thing that you sort of slam on the floor in front of enemies. But then when you switch it out, it turns into a sort of giant sort of tumor-ridden scythe that you can sort of fling around. It's just wonderful. What a weapon. It's like nothing nothing on earth. Brilliant. And just, yeah, just that kind of taking in the, the kind of absolute joy and wonder of that game is really, really something. And it's such a pleasure to play. And like, you know, one thing I sort of noticing playing it through is like that first half of the game, which sort of terminates at this Bergenworth, this sort of laboratory in the woods, um, you know, from where you kind of take down the veil, which has kind of been over the game. It's just like what pure, like dark magic that game weaves as you, you know, go through those horrible woods and arrive there. And it's this kind of, you know, observatory by this endless lake. These are just like you know environments of purest magic and numinous sort of pleasures um and yeah it's just a a a really really remarkable game um that i just i just think i'll always be returning to it basically because it just has so much in it so much like depth 
And like Uncharted 4 has like story in spades, but it's got no themes really. It's got no the themes it has are skin deep, whereas Bloodborne actually has very little plot really. Um or the plot it does have is very kind of dispersed. But what it has is is like dark themes which don't explain themselves easily, that don't unfold themselves easily you know, knowledge and insight and all of those kind of verbs that make their way into the sort of gameplay level are part of it. But it's actually got much more kind of deep and dark things to say. And that first reading I had of the game, you know, playing through it, um, you know, all those years ago, of it being a kind of meditation on darkness and despair and and misery and, and, you know, the pain of trying to beat that first fucking boss being this kind of you know, the thing that kind of kicked me into a new gear with video games and like, oh, these are things that you can actually get involved with, you know. Um, That is revealed to be only a partial picture of what that game is about. You know, the fact that, you know, one of the first things someone says to you in the game is like, don't think about it too much. Just get out and kill monsters. (laughs) And just like, what a wonderfully terrible harbinger of doom and death and and misery that becomes that statement becomes and how much the game has to say actually about ambition and and kind of uh, you know uh, human sort of greed and sort of the march of sort of science and technology in a funny kind of way and and religion and all this sort of stuff it's Mm. it's got so much going on in there and yeah it's just I was taken playing playing it, you know, through earlier today. Just, just how well it holds up, and I think it actually has improved in the light of Elden Ring, because Elden Ring is this wonderful magical world that I think represents a kind of apotheosis of the kind of promise of video games, the promise that video games have had for a long time of these kind of amazing worlds that you can strike out into in a kind of Gawain in the Green Knight sort of way. But actually, it clarifies what Bloodborne in Bloodborne is, which is this beautiful kind of short story novella version of 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 you know something like Michael Marcock would like have a nightmare about or something like that. It's this kind of <laughs> perfect crystalline little beast, mm. um, you know, curled up in the dark. So yeah, it was. It's just just talking a lot of sugar about Bloodborne, basically. <laughs> <a> game. <laughs> Is it horrific to you going back or, or is it comforting to return to those environments that you scoured so many times? Both. <laughs> it is both comforting and horrific. Like, particularly if you put the headphones in and, and like really listen to, you know, um, uh, you know, the sounds of that game, because it's got extraordinary sound design that just kind of is peerless, really. Um, I so I um I was sort of doing it while on sort of breaks and stuff like you know doing a bit of work and then you know zooming around old Yarnum or whatever to farm some blood files, but I found myself um, standing outside the fog gate for Vicar Amelia um, once you've sort of first summoned her and Vicar Amelia stands in there once she's sort of transformed and just screams this kind of awful howling guttural kind of cough sound and I found that I was just sort of sitting there listening to her do that for kind of 45 minutes <laughs> just kind of <laughs> while I was sort of tapping away on my keyboard and sending now you can't sleep like without putting that on loop a great YouTube video sound of Vicar of <laughs> howling in sort of 17 you know, hours tortured agony yeah um, <laughs> but yeah there is something there is something comforting about it but one of the things that kind of lifts you out of that actually is is the voice acting when you meet the human characters 
which I'd never really done before because obviously the ways in which you're supposed to kind of encounter these people is quite it's quite Byzantine and complex. But I know how to do it now having like watched other people do on YouTube and stuff like that. So collecting all the various like people in Yarnum you can sort of assemble in the cathedral. And actually lots those people are very human. They're very human characters and they're incredibly well performed and voice, you know, acted and, and all that sort of stuff. Even though they sort of sit there as sort of, uh, you know, without their lips moving, these kind of mannequin from style figures, the performances are often quite heartbreaking um, and kind of bring you back into a sense of horror if, you, if you've if you sort of slightly uh, grognard and wandered away from the true, you know, nightmare that's going on in, in Yarnum. If you just speak to basically anyone, <laughs> they will be more than happy to remind you of the terrible things uh, that are happening generally, and mm. more specifically, the terrible things that are happening inside their bodies. Uh, you know, which is only <laughs> going to end terribly as well. So, like, yeah, I think it's it's so good because you can relax into a groove of it, but actually, it's still got this kind of um, really like by the throat um, violence under the surface all the time, which yeah is is fantastic. I wonder. I mean, I've tried to show uh, bits of from software games um, to other people, and they're you know if if they're not into games or or even just not into that particular kind of game, their reaction to the way that dialogue is delivered is is usually quite dismissive. <laughs> but it's it's a very very peculiar style. Like it's not obviously not naturalistic, uh, and because it isn't really that interactive there's no kind of repartee you have with these characters they are just these mannequins who sort of bark at you about blood and then start laughing sinisterly but i mean it is in kind of like in totality very affecting i think and it is an effective form of storytelling but i can't quite put my finger on on how it manages to overcome what is quite an uncanny um and sometimes kind of creaky proposition in isolation with the way it delivers dialogue from those characters yes it's very strange and, and playing the the demon souls um remake uh, which i've only just sort of dipped my toe into but in that they've they've like fully animated the faces of of um the characters as they talk to you oh it's inc- okay it's, inc- it's it's really well done but it's incredibly unnerving <laughs> it's like it's really strange to see characters turn towards you in a in a from soft game even though it sort of isn't and and just their lips move as they as they talk to you um you know interesting that elden ring still doesn't do it do you um, think that's a good choice um what for the demon souls remake yes but also in general were other were that to be the direction that other from software games took with its voice acting in the future do you think that would be a good or merited change i think that um I think that the thing is with um, the version, you know, the Dark Souls version and the Elden Ring version, the Bloodborne version, is that there's a narrative justification for it. In the in Dark Souls um, and in Bloodborne, you are existing in this kind of weird fugue state between realities. Anyway, that there is always in these games a remove between what you perceive to be going on and what is actually going on. So the mannequin-like figures and your inability to like properly pass the way that they're communicating with you um is all just towards the theme of the games anyway mm. um demon souls probably gets away with it because it's a slightly more slightly less elevated fantasy world i think 
But in, you know, the other games that FromSoft have made, like Bloodborne is, you know, is a game all about failing to kind of properly um, understand what's happening right in front of you. And so the fact that characters, you know, talk past you, they don't look at you properly, you often have to like talk to them several times, which how is ever any, you know, how is anyone supposed to work that out unless someone tells them like, oh no, he'll stop talking to you. In fact, he'll tell you to fuck off and then dissolve into this really like terminal sounding hacking cough. But you have to then talk to him again and then again <laughs> before he gives you the thing that you want, you know, it's just com- completely mad. Um, but yeah, I think, I yeah, it's because it has a kind of narrative meaning behind it or a narrative feeling behind it i think it's i think it's the right choice whereas in demon souls i think uh i bet they had this exact conversation somewhere along there because it's an obsessive remake and i think maybe they thought of it as a way to kind of yeah define themselves slightly away from it or do something a bit differently Hmm. i think i kind of feel like uh all of those games and and like um I guess Hunt Showdown as well, which I spent a lot of time in, have sort of become a, a form of like immersion therapy <laughs> for me because you end up doing uh, and spending so much time in horrendous environments that they are sort of not robbed of of their meaning or horror, but they they uh, you begin to be kind of dispassionate or even kind of familiar with that horror in a way which is pleasant in a strange yeah, way. Well, I think it's a yeah, it's a it's a safe place to experience. You know, life is hard. You may have noticed, and yeah. uh, you know, these games actually, these forbidding worlds that you end up conquering become immensely kind of uh, uh, comforting because they are a, a safe way to express, uh, you know, fear and, and anxiety. You know, it's which is what games sort of are already. You know, but. I think that's one of the reasons that the Souls games are so effective is that there's something really fundamental about them that they tap into mm. our need in games is to kind of, you know, conquer a world or conquer a landscape or, or take command of a situation, um, you know, and sort of building that into the sort of narrative firmament of the world itself. So, yeah, I think it's I think that's absolutely why, you know, so many people I know, a friend of mine was having a terrible time recently and what he did was fire up Dark Souls and just <laughs> do some rounds of uh, <laughs> Lordran to make himself feel, you know, feel a bit more better. Yeah, I feel like that maybe it's because they uh, they demonstrate to you so early and often what the worst thing that can happen to you in that space is. Um, and they teach you essentially how to persist and overcome it. I think that's that's uh, it's probably quite a good lesson that you can take to other parts of your life. <laughs> it really is. And, and like, you know, in 2015, I played Bloodborne uh, and I also play uh, Spelunky for the first time. And mm. like, it's almost a cliche now of like these games cured my depression sort of articles that someone might have written 10 years ago. Um but like those games genuinely did te- teach me uh, in ways that I really should have learned by the time I was, <laughs> you know, <laughs> well into my mid twenties. Yeah. If we weren't um, so but, emotionally stunted, Jamie, these yeah, things were well, nothing to us. But they're, it, they're it revelations. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It was like having a. It was you know, Spelunky and Bloodborne were my private school education that I never had. <laughs> they, they made me feel incredibly confident to take the world on on my own terms. But like you know, the idea of like persistence and trying things again. Is not necessarily that obvious to quite a lot of people, particularly if they've had a shitty time of it, you know. Um, I think a lot of other games teach you the opposite, really. I mean, obviously, challenge is, uh, is a big uh, 
uh, and pointlessly contentious subject in games in general. But I, I think in, in, in terms of the way that a lot of games teach you that uh, you put in effort and you get to reward out as a sort of Skinner box um, mechanism. I think that has that has had had like an indoctrinating effect on me to some extent. I have very little patience with things that do not reward me, and I think Dark Souls uh, has has helped me. Not that that is divorced from like an incentive structure or anything like that, but it has learned me to be a bit more patient. Yeah, has learned funny, me? Did I say learned me? Yeah, it's has taught me. me to be a bit more patient. <laughs> I'll learn you. Um, <laughs> well, it's funny, isn't it? In like Uncharted, there's always the moment because I am, as I say on every episode of this podcast, I do. I think I'm a moron, and so the puzzles I find quite tricky <laughs> in Uncharted. And there's always going to be a moment, like a couple of minutes into a puzzle, where the character you're sort of standing with says to you. Oh, are you too are you too stupid to get it? Oh, bless! I'll tell you. Don't worry. And you're like, <laughs> oh, all right then, fine. Uh, <laughs> and Bloodborne never does that. Bloodborne just you know murders you again and again and again and again until you get it. Fear the old blood. Fear the old blood. What a nice nostalgic journey we've been on this evening. <laughs> Uh, that's all the time we have for this podcast. Uh, there's no point sending us questions uh, on Twitter because uh, I can't log into our Twitter account anymore because they destroyed TweetDeck. But you can watch all these recordings as videos on YouTube where you can find other stuff by us. The dress for that is... Shout out to your uh, lovely artwork that you put on the YouTube uh, videos. I always enjoy looking at that. Oh, the thumbnails. Yeah, they always do a nice thumbnail. It's <laughs> often true. a little bespoke thumbnail that's that you true. do. Thanks, I, man. And I, th- I like, think it like... deserves being called out. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you. And thanks also to our Patreon backers. You can back us too at patreon.com slash crankcrowbar. You can join our Discord community. They're great. The link for that is on our website, crankcrowbar.com. That's it. I've been Marsh Davis, and I'm off to find a Randy Highlander. (laughs) I've been Jamie Britton, and I'm off to partake in some blood ministration. A lovely evening awaits for both of us.